Okay, great. Acts 28. It's the end of a book. Uh, It's actually the end of several things. Acts 28 is not only the end of Acts. Acts is the end of the history, the historic, I, I believe, hear me right, I believe all the New Testament is true. But Acts is a historical accounting, and it's kind of the end of that, too. After that, we have letters which are teachings. So the story of Jesus, which began in Luke's authorship under the Gospel of Luke, is continued as the life of the church through the book of Acts. And Acts 28 is the end of all of that. Acts Acts is a sequel to Luke. And uh, there's there's a... Attention, I suppose, when you read a good book. If you ever read a good book and you close up the book and you give that, I just read a good book, exhale, right? you're not thinking in your mind, that was a great last chapter. You're thinking that was a good story. Because in a good book or in a good story, the last chapter holds hands with the first chapter. That's the, one of the roles it plays, is to tie things to bring us back again, to come home and show us where we went. And so this morning, Acts 28 is playing several roles. We could, I suppose, observe Acts 28 in a vacuum and say, here's the words, here's the 150 lines of the 28th chapter of Acts, and here's what they say, as though it was standalone scripture. But the reality is, is it's ending, it's reminding, it's being done mindfully of the beginning. So if you think of the Gospel of Luke as the first in a sequel, these are sequels to each other. The Gospel of Luke begins with uh, the birth of Christ and then follows the ministry of Christ and then shows uh, the culmination resistance to Christ, the crucifixion of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. And the way the, the, the book of Luke ends, it ends very abruptly. If it was a movie and you didn't actually know how it played out, it would be it would end like Empire Strikes Back ends. Just, what? Is his father? And he has no hand? It feels that way. In the book, Jesus says, in the very end of Luke, to these new believers looking at a resurrected Christ. I mean, this is a big deal. He says, don't do anything until the Spirit comes. And then he leaves. That's how the book ends. Like, come on! And then Acts picks up in the very same place. Acts picks up. You have that, you know, the five-minute overlap of two good sequels, you know? Acts picks up with that sequel. So Acts chapter 1 says, before Jesus ascended into heaven, he said to the disciples, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you will be my witnesses into Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after saying that, he has ascended into heaven. But that idea that the Holy Spirit will come on you and you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That is the big idea of the book of Acts. So Acts begins to tell the story, how the Holy Spirit does come on them, and how they are, in fact, witnesses of Jesus in Jerusalem, and then through uh, Judea and Samaria, and then ultimately to the ends of the world. And today we end up in two places. We end up in Malta, which is an end of the world, and as far as an inconsequential place, and we end up in Rome, which is a strategic end of the world, and, and this is what's given to us in the end of Acts to say, you see, God did exactly what he said he would do because he's faithful to reach the nations. 
That's, as we look at this last chapter, we're going to try to look at it mindful of what Luke was trying to say with the book. Okay. With that, let me read. I'm going to read 11 verses or 10 verses and then point at the 11th. Chapter 28. Ooh, before I do that, you know, I think I did, I was jerky last Sunday to you. I think I ended the sermon before they actually made landfall. Did I do that? I did that, I think. I'm sorry. I just slipped my mind. They make landfall. (laughs) So they lived. Which, you're authorized to read the book, by the way. But, uh, so if you weren't here or if, if you're a guest... Last week, we were in the 27th chapter. Paul is being transported from Caesarea all the way to Rome to make his appeal of his case before Caesar. On the journey, the ship is caught in a typhonicus, is the Greek word, right? This terrible squall, this nor'easter that pushes the ship way off course. They have to abandon all of the mechanisms of sailing, and they find themselves 14 days at sea, set adrift at the complete whims of the weather, and they at last make landfall at Malta. Should have said that last week. Okay, let's read. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and it was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to set sail, they put on board whatever we needed. Now I'll stop there, but I'll point to the first phrase of 11. After three months, we set sail. So they were essentially on Malta for three months. Well, this is an occasion when we can literally say Paul is snake bit. And uh, the reason I say that is, I imagine if I were Paul, wondering in a very prayerful way, you got to be kidding me. Like, I, that would be my prayer to the Lord. Point of the snake. You serious? A snake? What have I done to deserve a snake? What has he done? 
14 days adrift. He was perfectly faithful. Be of good heart, men. The God that I know has said he does everything right. You know, I mean, he's a... There, I'd wonder, is there some secret sin? Is this what this is about? What's, what's happening? You know, there's... This is, let me say it this way. There is... When we endure hardship as believers, as Christians, as people, but as religious people, when you endure a season of hardship, when the storms of your life hit, when you're in the winter season of your life and you're coming out of it, right? You make landfall or you have a nice bright spring day. In us, we want to have some finality. We want to close that chapter of our life, the cold, rainy chapter. And sometimes the Lord does these things. You just, I can't get out of it. You ever think you're on the way out? I'm cured of cancer. Ah, I'm not. Sometimes the Lord, there's a sense in us. This is, this is the most carnal and thin, immature way to say it, so I'll say it here. That way everyone can identify. When I work on, when I do my preaching on Sunday, after Sunday I get a nap. That is my job well done. Good job, John. Go take a nap. And when I don't get my nap, it's like, Lord, what have I done? Where's your grace? I, and I honestly feel, I, I, it's so immature, I'm just telling you, it's my issue and I'll work it out. But, I'm, but you have them. This is why I'm going, I'm going, I'm just debasing the whole idea to say you have these two. Where in like, Things that if we stepped away are silly, but in reality, it's like, Lord, I just want to get out. Can't I just enjoy the bright, sunny day? I went through all of this. I learned my lesson. For, I learned my lesson. You, you, you go through that, and yet you come, and next thing you know, you're snake bit again. But God is in control. And what we can say about this is, this is where we need to be thankful that the Lord's ultimate concern is not my happiness or your happiness, but his will. Because what happens is with Paul, he makes, this, he makes his landing on Malta a religious event. Do you see how superstitious the people are? He's bit by the serpent. They go, ha-ha, the gods are angry. And then he lives and they're, ha-ha, he is a god. They're very superstitious people. And most of the Mediterranean world was superstitious like this. In fact, I would, I would bear to say most of the world is superstitious like this. We live in a uniquely scholastic environment that celebrates reason and overreason and intellect and sophistication over all things. But in the reality, most of the world is simple. And the beauty in that, I don't want us to look down on these people. I think that would be wrong to look down on them because that, that's the sin of our sophistication at work. The reality is, is they have one great advantage over the people in our area and is they have no trouble admitting that there's a God and that the God is at work and that all the life is spiritual. That, in my mind, is a head start. Like witnessing, and you know this, witnessing among our colleagues and friends, you have like 30 walls you have to work through to get to something like this where you're just simply talking about whose God is bigger. But they're superstitious, right? Karma. Call it karma. The spiritual balance of the world. They see this and they assume. They assume that the gods are at work. 
I think this is how, the, how most of the world is. <clears throat> a few weeks ago, we were at the Southern Baptist Convention in Baltimore. That's where it was held this year. And Pastor Terry, Jeff, and I had this gr- several great opportunities to meet with the International Mission Board to talk about missions partnerships for our church. It's been something we've been working very hard to kind of take the right steps. And we had these grand slam just meetings that go well. I don't mean Grand Slam, in fact, they give us the answers, but we were like, I, I love that guy, and I want to see more of him, and he wants to see more of me, and everything he said made sense, and personalities matched, and the Lord was in it. And so we sat down with one gentleman, and he, he works, he lives in Senegal, which is in West Africa, and he works to partner churches, lay people in churches, people just like you, with villages in, in the area. And this is how they work. They'll go into a village, three or four of them, and they say the same thing in every village they go to. They say, we are people of prayer and we bring stories of God. That's what they say. To which the villagers usually say, well, if you are people of prayer, we need to hear these stories. And they will often say, you need to sit down if you have these stories. And so they sit down, and then they'll go get the village. And the village will come sit. And he said to us, he says, we always enter a village with the same two stories. The first story is a story of demonic possession. How Jesus saves the person from demonic possession. Why? Because like the Maltese people, they have no problem admitting in the spiritual realm. They have no problem admitting God. The question is, whose God has greater power? So they enter in with this, this, the stories of the demons because they want to show, we bring stories of a God who is greater than your God. And then their second story is the story of creation to the cross. It's, just a, it's a narrative that they've worked on to talk about how, uh, how Jesus, from creation to the fall, to the problem, to the promise, to the Christ, and all the work of Christ and what that means. And they use those, use those lead two stories. They said they always talk in stories. They never answer a village question without a story. Because God's word has answers. So if there's something in the village, they'll say, this reminds me of a story of God from from his word. And they'll tell the story. This is why you should know the Bible. It made me want to go back and like re-know it so I could be armed with the stories of God. But most of the world is like this. Much of the world is like this. Anyway, it makes me wonder, this viper, this snake bite, makes me wonder whether God really saved Paul with Malta or not. Let me say it this way. If you're like me, and if you reason like me, and if if our lives are enough alike, we have no problem reading the story of last week and this week and saying, God saved Paul by landing him on Malta. That's... That's a very easy reading comprehension statement for us to make, is Malta was Paul's salvation, right? He lit, thank the Lord for Malta, that God brings the boat and runs it into Malta, and Malta serves to be the salvation of Paul. And I don't want to deny that. We, we do this in our own lives with things. We see the things God gives us as having been given for our good. So God gives me a job. The job allows me to support my family and care for my family. Thank the Lord for giving me the job so that I can therefore, it brings good into my life. That's just the normal calculus that we do about our situations in life. I'm not trying to deny it. 
I want to suggest, however, that maybe the opposite is likewise equally true. Maybe God saved Malta by bringing them Paul. Which one is more adrift? I mean, there's a sense that Paul was adrift until he landed on Malta. There's a sense that Malta is, on, is adrift until they meet Paul. I think this is the sort of thing that we need to remind ourselves of daily, maybe multiple times a day, which is, Lord, help me see that as much as this life can be framed in a way that is about me, equally, this life can be framed in the way that my life is not about me, but is about the people I meet. Cannot that equally, cannot that be said in equal measure? The job has been given to you, and you have been given to the job. The wife has been given to you, but you have been given to the wife. Children have been given to you, but you have been cast over to the children so that they would not be cast adrift. Some of you may say, you look at the text and you're saying, well, yeah, this sounds fine, but he's not actually preaching anything here. Like there's no account of ministry. I read you the whole experience of Malta and there's no ministry. I mean, this as though I'm seeing something that isn't there, which I would say, my first point would be, by this point in Acts, does it actually have to be here to think that Paul is doing the work? Do I have to say it by this point? You should know Paul by this point. But I will show it to you nonetheless. All right? First of all, he lands on the island and gets bit by a snake. He is thrust by the Lord into a religious experience. Unvolunteered. I'm not, I'll admit to you that Paul, Paul just wanted to get dry. Okay? I'm not saying that Paul looked at Malta. In fact, I'll admit to you that Paul did not look at Malta with the eyes of a missionary. Paul looked at Malta with the eyes of a hungry sailor who was wet. It's God who turned the moment into a spiritual moment, right? Right there, there's the serpent. Next thing you know, it's this. The Maltese people have made it spiritual. And then what happens the next day? The next day he meets Publius. Publius says, here's my sick father. Paul lays his hands on Publius, or is Publius' father, heals him. Then the next day, everybody in town is lined up with their sickness. And what does Paul do? He heals them all, and they're there for three months. Now, what do you think Paul did for three months? I mean, couldn't the Lord have teed this up any better for the gospel. Paul, who shares the gospel in the most inconvenient times you can imagine, how do you think he might have shared the gospel in an environment where he's clearly been given status as God's man from whom the power of God flows? Church history, which is not scriptural, so, you know, maybe it's true, maybe it isn't. But church history records the first bishop of Malta, the church of Malta, as Publius. This Publius. The church remembers he was the first convert on the island, and the church was placed under his shepherding. How do you think he came to know Jesus?
it doesn't matter if Malta was on Paul's list or not. Malta was on God's list. God sees Malta. That to me, it's my favorite part of the whole chapter. It's God sees Malta because you don't see Malta. I could hardly tell you where Malta is. And I have an education. I mean, I know Europe. There's so many places in the world that are like Malta that are inconsequential places that you and I would never go to unless the Lord shipwrecked us there. But God sees these places. God sees Malta. In our world, there are uh, 60, over 6,500 unreached people groups. That, that are peoples, like Mal- the Maltese people here, people who, they're among the people, less than 2% have any, any faith that would resemble Christian. And there's not a single church, not a single church on the faith of the earth trying to bring the gospel to them. 6,500 of them. You will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is a sign, right? That the Lord, this is, the Lord, it's a demonstration that the Lord brings his people. This is where I say, Lord, shipwreck us. Shipwreck us across the face of the earth if you need to, so that the nations might know. Because the reality is, is they may be inconsequential to us, but they are not, they are no less inconsequential to the Lord than we are. At the, at the conference I was at, a, a minister, um, he was an old minister, which they preach better because it has oldness in it. I can't give you that. Come back in 30 years. Oh, it's good. It's old, it's old ministerness preaching. And I, I just, I never get to send him to preaching. So I was already like three sheets of the wind. I was... I was the Lord's. And he said this. He said, it's one thing to be lost, speaking of the gospel. He said, it's one thing to be lost. He says, it's another thing to be lost and no one's looking for you. That's Malta. That's Malta and 6,500 other groups. Lost and no one's looking. Places you and I don't even know exist until they show up in a World Cup soccer tournament. God knows. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Okay. Let's keep reading. Uh, Verse 11. I'm going to be quick with 11 through 16. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there we made a circuit and arrived in Regium. And after one day a south wind sprang up, and on the second day we came to Puteoli. There we found brothers, and were invited to stay with them for seven days. So we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. 
Now, I want to just, I don't want to spend long here. Just enough that you observe Paul's encouragement. He's encouraged by meeting these believers. And to remind ourselves, allow this to remind us, that Paul did not bring the gospel to Italy. It was already there. How special is it? How special is it? As far as the world that they knew, right? He's halfway across the Sea of Middle Earth, right? The Mediterranean. He's halfway across the Mediterranean. He lands on this place that he's been dying to bring the gospel to. And, and not that he thinks necessarily he's a trailblazer, but when he gets to port, there's believers there waiting for him. I can imagine it, holding the sign like, Paul... Can I take your bags? There's this, this, but how encouraging would that be? How encouraging should it be to believers that when you go all across the world, believers are not hard to find? Even in this case, to the ends of the earth. I mean, at this point, it's within a lifespan of the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. At this point, the gospel is already well-rooted in Italy, and Paul did not bring it there. And that's what I want to show you. I want to show you and encourage you. We don't know who brought the gospel to Italy We don't know who did it. Some nameless believer brought the gospel to Italy. Some group of believers. I want to encourage you that the main hard work of the gospel, of bringing the hope of Jesus Christ throughout the world, is not being done by superstars like Paul. It's being done by us. Nameless people who will never be publicly recognized in any kind of scripture or tome. Nonetheless, they're the ones who beat Paul there, and there's legitimate churches with legitimate brothers and sisters in Christ who are there to minister to Paul. I mean, the reversal of that is just beautiful. I just want to remind you the gospel of Jesus Christ is not propagated by a few select elite faithful. It is the work of all his people. All of us play a role in this. All of us can play a role in this. Okay, we'll keep moving. I'm going to read the end just because it seems right to read the end of the book. Uh, But uh, look at 16 real quick. He, He was allowed to stay by himself with a soldier who guarded him. This is how it would have looked from what we understand about Roman law. Um, He's not in prison, but Paul would have had a chain on his body. So imagine his arm would have been chained, and that chain would have extended to another person, and that person would have been a Roman guard. And that's how you were under house arrest back then, is they chained you physically to a Roman guard. And then they would cycle the guard out on shifts. So every four hours, the guard would shift out, but the prisoner would remain the same. That, as we read and as we appreciate what's being said here, that's, that's the Paul that we know, is a Paul who is chained uh, but free from prison, if that makes sense. 17. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers... Though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because of the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar. 
though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regards to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When, he had, when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. So his statement is going to go from here through 28. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through the Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear. And their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Okay, I'll stop there. Now, if this was the only chapter we were going to look at, if we weren't mindful of the rest of the book, we would dig deep here and look into Isaiah. But the reality is, in the con- if you put it next to the contour of the whole book of Acts, what you see is this. Paul did in Rome what he did in every town he went to. Luke is showing us that when Paul went to Rome, he embraced it as a mission field in the same way that he embraced it in, in Corinth, in the same way he embraced it in Lystra, and Derby and Pisidia, and Antioch, and Ephesus, and all of these other places that he would go to. He did the same thing there. He goes to the synagogue. Why? Because the synagogue, the Jews, have a foundation of truth upon which the story of Jesus Christ is best understood. That's why we hold the Old Testament. This is our synagogue here that we understand. And through this synagogue here, we better understand Christ. We better understand truth. So he goes to the place where the foundation of Jesus has already been laid and seeks to build upon it. That's what he always did. And they reacted in the way that they often did, which is there was a disagreement among them. And that agreement was, I mean, if you look at his, the way he quotes Isaiah, the agreement was ultimately not an intellectual agreement, but a hard-hearted agree- disagreement. That there was something about their hearts that wanted to reject what God was saying. To which Paul do, did what he always did, which is, if you won't listen, they will. And I put this out here. This, well, I'm not putting it here. I think Luke is putting it out here. He's presenting this at the end of the book to show that the gospel, at the end of this story, the gospel has made it to the ends of the earth. And at the ends of the earth, there's people who reject it. And at the ends of the earth, there's people who receive it. And the goal is not to bring this gospel to a few. The goal is to bring this gospel to everyone who will listen. Everyone who will listen. 
And the goal, the gospel is not weak if it fails to pierce into someone's heart. The gospel is life. And we are weak. So rather than trying to continually bang your head against a hard-hearted person who has no desire, has hard-hearted reasons for rejecting the truth, like Paul, we bring the gospel of life to those who will listen. Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. God sees all people. God desires that his word would reach all people. And this is how, this is how the book almost ends. It doesn't quite end yet. I'll end it. Uh, look at 30 and 31. Well known this. One of the last word of the book. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Now in the Greek, the last word of the book is uh, without hindrance. That's one Greek word. Without hindrance, which has struck me um, in reading because... Well, my mind immediately said, wait a second, isn't he in chains? What do you mean, without hindrance? He's a prisoner. Without hindrance, he was shipwrecked. Without hindrance, he's been beat, he's been flogged. He's been stoned. He's been ridiculed. He was just rejected in the synagogue. Without hindrance, all I see in the life of Paul is it's a book of hindrance. It's a, book, it's a book describing a faithful man's difficult, persevering steps of faithfulness in order, despite the hindrances of man, to share the gospel. And yet Luke ends the story that he just told about all the hindrances Paul's received, saying Paul was able to speak boldly without any hindrance. Without hindrance, this is the place where he wrote the book of Ephesians. It begins, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. And it ends with, I'm in chains for him. This is the very same place he wrote Colossians, in which he said, remember my chains, to the Colossian church. This is the same place he wrote the letter to the Philippians, in which he said, thank you for seeing and responding to my need of care, for I am in a dire straits. That's the same place. This is the same place where he writes the letter of Philemon to his friend and refers to himself as Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. This same Paul is sharing the gospel without hindrance. Without hindrance. Man, to be that vertically minded as a believer. We, we, I hope you're not part of my we, but on the off chance that you're a we, we are so horizontal with our experience. We're so prone to feel the hindrances of this world, the shackles on our feet or our hands or the things that would come against us physically, the things that would seem to oppress our, our purely human nature side. When God would have us, right, to me, to live as Christ and to die as gain. This notion of Paul saying, my perspective is now at the Lord. And now, despite the chain, in fact, in fact, the chain now allows me to speak the gospel to people I would have never reached. I wonder what Paul's guards are like. Do you know that the end of Colossians, I'll read it for you in a second. We have time. 
when you hear the, in the Colossians, you know, I was reading these letters last night just thinking about Paul's imprisonment. And it's not there. Maybe it's Philippians. It was last night, the late Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. It's probably Philippians. Yeah, look at 21. The very last page. Well, I'll just read it to you. This is 4 verse 21. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. Listen to this. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. How do you think they heard? Man, I'd say, Lord, shackle us to these people. This is it. Is the chain, what's the purpose of the chain? Is Paul being shackled to the guard or the guard being shackled to Paul? You see our eyes? Our eyes need to change. Our eyes need not to interpret the things of this world in our lowly estate, but to receive the, the circumstances of this life. How is God purposing this for his glory? For his glory. The saints in Caesar's household. What a victorious thing to write. Imagine writing that with your own pen, that I can actually say the saints in Caesar's household. You will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's the beginning of the story, and that's how the story ends. Amen. Let me pray. Lord, it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. It's your love that puts in us. So, Lord, may we, it's my hope that we don't feel convicted to go on mission because we're simply told to, or out of guilt, or to imitate Paul in an earthly way, Lord, I pray you put it in our hearts, a genuine, genuine desire to share the gospel without hindrance. Boldly without hindrance. We recognize, Lord, in your word that you spread your church through your people, not through one or two great men. Lord, we recognize the great man has come and is risen. And all that's left is the mediocrity of your church, which you raise and enable to preach boldly without hindrance. And so, Lord, we are they, a few of the nameless many, Lord, who are called to do your work. So I pray, Lord, I pray your spirit would be the genuine impetus behind this obedience. For your glory, Lord. May it be our fixation on you, our joy in you that enables it, Lord. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.